watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. My name is Simon Brown. Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss will be joining us in this evening to guide us through the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Peter Little from Anchor Capital to discuss their Sunlum Global Stable Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, here's a quick look at what's been making headlines. What we first off is that U.S. trade war within China is on hold and off to a surprise concession from China. China dropped its anti-dumping probe into imports of U.S. sorghum. Trade in sorghum is worth over a billion dollars, was halted last year. The world's two largest economies have meanwhile agreed to drop their tariff threats whilst they work on a broader trade agreement. Move came hours after U.S. officials said China was offering to slash the U.S. trade deficit by up to $200 billion. The deficit was $375 billion last year. Progress in the U.S.-China trade war talks has sent oil prices within sight of last week's November 2014 highs. Analysts, however, have expressed ease with the supply and demand dynamics despite ongoing production cuts led by OPEC and looming U.S. sanctions against major oil producer Iran. And on the company news front, e-commerce sales rebounded at Walmart, helping, helping revenue beat expectations, while JCPenney's flat same-store sales fell far short of targets. Here's more on that. Walmart's e-commerce business bounced back, helping quarterly revenue rise and beat expectations. E-commerce sales at the world's largest retailer shot up 33%, a turnaround from the sharp slowdown in the holiday season. Walmart's CFO said online grocery sales continued to accelerate and the revamp of the company's website helped, as did the introduction of new brands through its partnership with department store chain Lord & Taylor. Earlier this month, Walmart agreed to buy Indian e-commerce firm Flipkart so it can better compete with Amazon.com. Consumer Edge analyst David Schick said, e-commerce trends are the near-term focus of investors driven by Walmart.com and online grocery strength. Our analysis of digital traffic had suggested some acceleration. Sales at existing stores in the U.S. rose in line with expectations. Over at JCPenney, same-store sales were nearly flat and fell far short of Wall Street's targets. The department store operator blamed unusually cool weather in April for crimping demand for spring clothing. Penny's net loss was wider than expected, and it cut its full-year profit forecast. Shares of J.C. Penny tumbled at the market open Thursday, while Walmart's rose. Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss joining me in studio. Gary, thanks for your time this evening. I don't know which one to kick off on. I suppose let's go with Walmart. Not bad numbers. The, the, the key point the market was really looking for was that, that online component, um, which up nicely, but obviously a lower base beating expectations, and that's really the going head-to-head -head with Amazon if we take bricks and mortar as like last year's way of retail. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's really the, the, the focus for Walmart now is to try and convince the market that they have the ability to transition into an online retailer. And I, you, know, you kind of look at the, the headline numbers on, on Amazon's growth versus Walmart's growth. Amazon <coughs> were just almost 40%, Walmart growing at 4.1%. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a significant difference. And most, most analysts are saying that that kind of brick-and-mortar you know, chain stores that, that Walmart have is, are going to be a se severe hindrance. But there's, there's perhaps a good argument to be made that if they can convert those correctly to either pickup points or central distribution locations. Warehousing in a sense. Warehousing in a sense, exactly right. This could be a, a significant competitive advantage for them. So, you know, it's still, it's still uh, you know, bigger than Amazon by, by profit and sales. I mean, we can't really look at the profit line too much because Amazon doesn't really care about making profit anyway. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, did, it didn't look like a bad set of numbers. And I think you're almost starting to get 
the sense that this is a company that's that's waking up. I mean, we saw that obviously the Flipkart acquisition yep. as well, uh, and they're waking up. They're trying to get into the e-commerce space. They've seen what Amazon is doing. They know that if they don't do something, you know, Amazon is going to eat their lunch, and it's it's uh, you know it's now head to head. In a sense, almost. I mean, they're 20 years behind Amazon. Mm. Well, no, 25 years behind Amazon. That's giving quite a head start to Amazon. But mm. what it does do is Amazon's kind of shown the way in a sense, mm. and 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 given indications of how you do it and what consumers want. Uh, for example, Amazon Prime, they've got 100 million users. Um, they knocked that fee up $20. Well, there's, there's, there's a big pile of cash you get extra every year. Mm. But it gives Amazon, uh, sorry, Walmart a sense of what they need to do to solidly compete. Absolutely. Uh, Amazon might have had that kind of first mover e-commerce advantage, but, but sh- sh- certainly Walmart, uh, you know, just because of the sheer scale, will be able to implement best, best practices. Now, you know, Amazon's size as well does give it you know, some, almost some impediment as well, because the, the whole reason Amazon was looking at Flipkart to, to get into <coughs> India. Now, we know Walmart's in there. It's in India, a very exciting market. Uh, Amazon couldn't go in because of, most likely, because of antitrust regulation. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you go in and you Amazon say, I want to buy Flipkart, oh, wait a minute, you're going to be 90% of the market. Suddenly, there's a space for Walmart, and it does look like Walmart is going to be kind of the, the official opposition of, of Amazon, and that's, that's not a bad place it's to be. not a bad place. I would be happy with, with number two on, to Amazon. And especially if you look at the, the potential for, for e-commerce growth. So, I mean, this was a study done by FTI. I mean, you're looking at 2016 in the US, this is US uh, e-commerce sales, uh, 395 billion. Uh, they're projecting out to 2020 at 523, and by 2027, 1 trillion in, in e-commerce sales. So you're seeing probably what three three times three times growth in e-commerce sales. Like as you say, number two, not not a bad spot to be in that kind of environment. In India, plus a billion people, relatively modest low penetration mm. of internet. Probably where the US mm. was in percentage terms of internet penetration 10 or 15 years ago. If you can become number one or even a, a, a tie in, in, in India, that can become a, Walmart could almost become an Indian company. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you say 10 to 15 years, it could even be, be deeper than that. I mean, sure. if, you, if, you look at, uh, if you look at e-commerce sales kind of as a percentage of, of trade in India, I think it's, it only makes up about 4% of, of total retail sales. So it's, it's a very, very small component with a huge amount of potential growth. And you know, while there's a lot of criticism that, uh, you know, Walmart potentially overpaid for Flipkart, which is fantastic, sure. fantastic for news for NASPAS holders <laughs> and a couple of other of, of the original shareholders in Flipkart. But it's um, you know it, it certainly has given them a, a unique position in the Indian market, which is a difficult market to break into and a market that is really you know wrapped up in regulation. So it's uh, I, mean, I think they've got 100 million customers at the moment in India, and that could grow significantly. I mean, you know, just 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 looking at the figures and and not just in the number of customers, but also the value that the customers, that customers are transact. Quickly before we leave it, Walmart, is it is it worth looking at now or do we wait for it to start proving a little more metal, a few more quarters under the belt? Oh, we own Amazon in portfolios. We don't own Walmart at the moment. But, but certainly it is something that has come up in investment uh, committee discussions. And it's something that we are looking at because it, you know, while you don't have the kind of uh, same, same uh, revenue growth uh, at the moment, that, that kind of is keeping a bit of a lid on, on Walmart's price. So you've got to kind of wonder if it's not worth a number. Yeah, but hey, you've got number one. So the biggest number, the number that matters right now, US 10 year, 3.1%. I think it hit 3.124. Uh, it's pulled back a little bit. 
this is the number that's been spooking the market. Is this the number that matters? And what 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 do we care? Does it you know if it goes to three and a half, does the world end? If it goes back to two and a half, are we all back to the races? <laughs> it's a good question. I follow a wonderful economist at, at UBS, and his view is, is I think similar to mine. It's a psychological level, sure, sure. And, and and people look at it because it makes nice nice headlines. But you know, is the world is the real world changed at, at two point nine versus three point one any more so than than the world has changed with two point seven versus uh, 2.9. Yeah, fair point. Probably not. So it's, I mean, it's something that, I mean, was expected. I mean, we, we understand that interest rates in the U.S. are rising. I mean, this is an economy that is firing on all cylinders. Yep. I mean, we're seeing, you know, basically, we thought it was frictional unemployment and then it got better. <laughs> and now it's like more than frictional unemployment. You know, any survey of the, the U.S. labor market at the moment is, you know, companies are saying that they're struggling to find talent. They're, they're having to pay up. You're going to start seeing wage, wage inflation coming into the system. This is, this is an economy that's running very, very hot. You look at uh, last, the, the earnings season last quarter as well. I mean, you know, EPS growth of well, it's 20%, north of 20%, yeah. even on average on S&P 500 companies. This is a, a, an economy firing on all cylinders. Yeah, interest rates should potentially yeah. be a little bit higher than they are. And best EPS growth since, I think, October, since the, the third quarter of 2010. Before we head off, uh, tra trade wars, so we were going to have trade wars, the world was going to end. Mm. Um, it started with 50 billion. It was a little confusing exactly what it was and wasn't, and I hear you. Uh, but suddenly over the weekend, all's happy again, although the China seems to have made some concessions, but it's one thing to say we'll buy an extra $200 billion of US stuff. It's another thing to actually write the check. It's very difficult to understand how they're going to do it. So even if you, you look at all the you know vastly improving probably airline uh, purchases sure. as a component, uh, energy purchases and raw materials, you get to about a hundred billion, and you're still pretty short. And at the same time, I mean, again, there's another argument to be made. It's actually very easy to to narrow trade deficits like that. You just transport the location of the final component of the manufacturing <laughs> to a different country, and suddenly it changes all the numbers because that's how it's measured. So make most of the components. In the supply chain in China, but the final component you don't do in China, that'll tweak the number as well. So, you know, this whole argument around, you know, trade tariffs and that, it's, you know, tariffs are a mechanism that, that were, you know, for me, it, it's, it's a mechanism that worked very well in maybe the 18th and 19th centuries. But, yeah. you know, if you look at the complex supply chains that we have internationally, I mean, there's, there's a wonderful Economist article that shows it's the manufacture of a seating component for a, car, uh, for a car. And how many times, it was in the context of NAFTA, how many times it crosses between the U.S. and Mexico in, in, in the manufacture of a simple seating component. I mean, sure, there's electronics involved, but it's something like 15 different times. I mean, you can't just slap tariffs in and expect things to not and grind. And which a time do you count it? The third time, the tenth time, every it's, time? It's, it's a very, very complex process, and it makes great headlines. And I mean, mm. we understand that. You know, it, I think this this you know, de-escalation that we've seen in, in in the the talks today, which has got markets a little bit excited. Uh, you know, it it probably needs to happen while they discuss the framework. But but I think you know what what really has us concerned is that you know, you've got con congressional elections coming up in November. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, this is the, the, the states that really they, they thrive on that kind of Trump rhetoric around we will clamp down on China, we will label China a currency manipulator and, and that sort of thing. And, and that, you know, leads us to believe that potentially this is not uh, going to be the end of the, the, the trade wars or the tensions with China. And Half a minute before break, oil retreating a bit. Does oil in the 70s bother you? Do you think it's sustainable? 
Uh, so if I listen to Vovis, the the perma the perma the perma bayon, or <laughs> so I say bayon, I mean going up. Uh, sort of think of optimistically that oil might fall. But uh, you know, looking at, it, I think you, you certainly with the, the geopolitical tensions in Iran, you could easily see a spike up to even hundred dollars a barrel. Longer term, there is a lot of a lot of um, uh, shale production yeah, that can still come ultimately. on. Um, if you listen to the uh, Bob Dudley CEO of, of BP talking, they see oil between sort of you know. Fifty and sixty-five dollars a barrel as as the supply comes back online, and this this kind of trade tensions with Iran just just traders speculating ahead of it, and and, so and par, par, partially the the supply freeze out of OPEC and, and Russia. Yeah, so short term pain, short, but short term a little bit, but long long term a bit of a, a bit of okay. a settling down. So walk for the next couple of months, and then we go back to driving. Taking a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at Anchor Capital Sunlam Stable Fund with Peter Little. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor still in studio with me. Of course, we've got Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss and joined now by Peter Little from Anchor Capital. Peter, thanks for joining us. We're going to be talking your uh, Anchor Global Stable Fund. Uh, the first point I want to kick off on, I, I, I look at a lot of these, the, these fact sheets and they always give the risk between low, mid-low, moderate, moderate, high, high. And they're always either low or high. Yours comes bang in the middle. I don't know if I've ever seen a moderate fund before. So assuming probably most of our viewers haven't either, where does a moderate fund position into, a, into, a, into an overall portfolio? Yeah, Simon, thanks for having me here tonight. So, so when we looked at setting this up probably four or five years ago when I joined Anchor, um, most of our clients who'd, who'd decided to, to expatriate their savings and take dollars offshore were invested predominantly in equities. Um, and I think that was a familiarity thing. I think sure. uh, guys were more comfortable with company names they'd heard of. South Africans tend to be um, pretty affair with investing in equities, but that risk profile didn't necessarily meet everyone's needs. Um, but on the flip side of that, you had this sort of, uh, at that time, I think um, US 10-year bond yields were about 2%. Um, and despite the fact that that was actually a positive real return of, of, of 1% or so, I think South Africans couldn't get their, their heads around investing in something that gave you such a, <laughs> such a low absolute return. So bond funds, you know, particularly on an after-fee basis, were, were not particularly appealing. And so, so we sort of ended up going with something that, that put enough growth assets in there. So about a quarter of the portfolio is in, in equities, about 10% yeah. in, in, in real estate. So there's enough growth assets in there so that you get a bit of growth for your capital, but also not you know all the way out on your risk spectrum for those guys who who have a bit of a, more of a capital preservation focus. Capital preservation, less growth. And as you say, 1% real is real in America. Yeah, we're not so excited about it. If we drill into it, I mean, your, your top holdings, and we'll talk equities in a second, you, you've got some, some S&P, you've got some, some uh, uh, short-term corporate bonds, mostly sitting in, in, in government bonds. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to it, but, but you're, that, that weighting is quite high in the, in, the, in the government bond space. Chatting with Gary a moment ago, 10-year above three, hitting 3.124, uh, coming back below 3.1. Are you, are you stressing about these numbers or are you quite uh, sanguine with them? No, I think, frankly, it's, it's, it's looking quite interesting for the first time in ages. I mean, uh, at over 3%, you've got, as I say, about a percent of U.S. Uh, inflation is running just over 2% at the moment. So you've got about a, a percent of real return there. Um, I think probably it's more interesting at the front end of the curve. So U.S. two-year bonds, uh, which 
sort of at the middle of last year would have been around one and a half percent. They're now giving you two and a half percent. So you don't actually have to take on that much um, duration and interest rate risk at the 10-year point to get a decent yield at this, at this stage. So, so, so yielding assets for the first time in ages, I think, are starting to look a bit, bit more attractive, certainly for the point in the cycle that we're at. Yeah, so that's a fair point. We've just come out of S&P 500 earnings, a, 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 a good quarter by any metric, a, a solid quarter from that. We can park trade wars and the like aside. We can maybe come back to them in a bit. But certainly good results out there. But however you spin it, this bull market is long in the tooth. And I'm not saying it's over, but it, it, it's certainly surely closer to an end than the beginning. Does that give you a bias perhaps away from, from equity to a degree? Or are you more going to wait for an event and, and then sort of lower the equity weighting? I think it's always difficult to time these things. As you say, we're, pro we're almost certainly closer to the next recession than we are from the, from the last one. Um, and so I Which gives I us a 10-year window, of course. <laughs> exactly. So I think we're, we're, we're 10 years in. I think the last three or four, the average has been eight years, so we're longer. There's, there's obviously many arguments for and against why this could be longer than usual. But the, the point is, no, it's very few people see these recessions coming in advance. Sure. So, to, so to say I'm going to pick the catalyst that's going to drive me into bonds is... Um, you know, that's quite a low probability event. So, so my bias is towards as, as you sort of get long in the tooth in this cycle to make sure that you have the, the protection there and not try and sort of switch out of equities into bonds at the right time. So I think we're getting towards the time where, as I say, yields are looking more attractive. We're certainly heading, I don't think a recession is imminent, but we're certainly heading in that direction at some point in the next couple of years. And I think, you know, sort of keeping a stable allocation for at least for that portion of savings that people care about capital preservation or have a slightly sorted duration, it's, it's a good time to be there. Gary, I'm not sure how many of your clients are capital preservation fans, but I mean, are, are you still you know, guns blazing or are you getting a, a little, a little I don't, nervous is the wrong word, but perhaps a little circumspect um, in the offshore, particularly in the US? Yeah, I think, I think we really take it on a client-by-client -client basis. So it kind of depends on the risk profile of the client. And, and certainly we, we've, we've seen a, a lot of interest in kind of our capital protected products as well. We're working with a lot of the different uh, institutional houses, looking for some of that kind of equity upside, but just you know, giving, giving them some capital protection at the same time because absolutely once you, you're sitting in an eight-year bull market so, you know, to look forward and say over the next five years I'm pretty certain the market's going to be higher it, it, it becomes more difficult and especially if you're sitting at kind of retirement age and different if you're 30 or 60 absolutely if you've got a 20 25 year time horizon no problem you know time in the market absolutely you know buy equities because you don't know that this market's not going to run for another four years but uh, you know when you start to get to get towards retirement you know having maybe a, a three and a half year strategy where you know that you are going to get at least a 4% return but can still capture some equity market upside. I mean, that's that's kind of where we're positioning our clients. I mean, we have looked at kind of the, the likes of stable funds and that as well for our client base. Uh, I mean, it's just interesting. Maybe I can just po pose a question to you, Pete, as well. Like, when, when you kind of move into the offshore spaces, which is really where our clients kind of like to play, um, you know, obviously you've got much lower inflation, much lower return environments as well, yet it doesn't seem like performance fees or, or at least management fees shift, whether you're in RAND or in, uh, in dollars. I mean, is that that, is, that, is that the right way of thinking about it? As we bring down the risks, should we, should we not also bring down the fees to an extent? I mean, I guess I think it's a tough question, but yeah. I kind of think of, of the, the skill required. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's, you should pay less if you think you're getting less mm -hmm. skill is generally the way I think about it. And, and mm -hmm. if you think that there's less skill required to, to earn returns offshore, then you, then you should mm -hmm. probably pay less for it rather than... You know, slicing up the pie of available real returns, which is mm. somewhat arbitrary, I guess. Mm.
In terms of, of geography, you're, you're a global fund, and, and, and therefore there's a planet out there. Do you, do you say we, 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 we like the US, or we like Europe, or a particular region, and, and go and hunt? Or are you fairly agnostic, particularly, you know, whether it be in your bonds, perhaps whether it be in the equity? Are you just, if, if this is quality enough, geographic geography doesn't bother you? Or, or, and currency, for that matter, because of course there's different currencies at play. Yeah, so, so because it's a conservative fund, I tend to stick to the developed markets, uh, sure. focus on US and Europe, Japan, um, much less of a focus on the emerging markets. So we, we're looking for opportunities on those. I prefer to be diversified. So, um, you know, all of these countries go through cycles and, and again, timing them is, is pretty tough. So we want exposure to most of them. Uh, to answer your question on currencies, the fund's denominated in dollars. And I try not to take currency bets unless I have a strong, strong <laughs> view against that. So, so my default will be to hedge everything back into dollars unless we, we really think that there's a, a strong reason not to be in dollars at that point. And are, is, is the fund mostly therefore in, in the US, be it in, in, in treasuries or, or, or in equities? So in the fixed income space, um, a lot of what's available, liquid and high quality, tends to be US dollar denominated. Um, Euro and, and, and GBP is, is sort of the next set of good supply. Um, so, so a lot of the fixed income stuff tends to be US dollar focused. Um, in the equity space, again, I mean, probably half of global capital markets is, is US, US, so you sort of default into that. Um, that anywhere, particularly if you're going for high quality companies that tend to be um, U.S. domiciled, even though they're not you know, focused on the domestic markets in the U.S., they tend to be listed there. Geopolitics, we're chatting with Gary Trade Walls. We had the ZTE story break uh, last Monday or perhaps it was Sunday. Um, certainly, obviously, the Iran story, North Korea, will they or won't they meet on the 12th of June? How much is that informing your decision? Certainly, my sense is, is that with Brexit, with Trump in, 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 in the White House, there's a lot more geopolitical going down than there perhaps was three years ago. And maybe that's just too much Twitter for me. Um, how much is that factoring in it? Or, or again, if, if this is a solid company or a good treasury, the geopolitics can play their game, the, the, the quality will come through. Yeah, I think the latter. I think, I think you have a lot of noise around um, sort of uh, these trade wars and obviously they will have an impact on the economy but again trying to sort of time in and out of companies that might might or might not be affected on a short-term basis pretty tough game so we we try to look through most of the noise and 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 look to see more is it going to have a long-term impact on the economic cycle um, which trade wars probably will they're probably not good for global global growth. So that, that's, it's more going to inform our, our view on perhaps the length of the cycle than it is on trying to pick specific companies that might benefit from these things. We've got a couple of minutes to go. Your top 10 holdings are all either uh, some futures and, and, and mostly uh, T-bills and the like. Equity space, what, what are some of your, your, your bigger equity holdings? So I tend to, to um, Pick off, uh, we have a couple of guys, Dave Gibb and, and Nick Dennis, who run global equity funds for us. I tend to just incorporate their, uh, their equity picks into the fund, and then I just equal weight it. So I'd, I try not to have too much stock-specific risk in the company, so uh, in, the, in the fund itself. So you, you're very rarely going to see position ec single equity position sizes of more than a percent, percent and a half. So there's not huge concentrations in that. Um, and it tends to, t tends to be more of the value bias names. 
which haven't really worked this year much, unless you were in uh, Amazon <laughs> and most of the tech stocks. You haven't. You've you've struggled to make money. But yeah, it'll be it'll be the the big global corporates, the J.P. Morgans, the Royal Dutch Shells, the sort of bellwether corporates. Last question uh, for for people looking at this. This is domiciled in Ireland. It's U.S. dollar. So you're buying with offshore money um, outside the borders of the country. You're not buying this in South Africa as well. Exactly. This is this is specifically for for. South African investors, but it's for investors who've used their allowance to get money out the country and now have hard currency to invest with. We'll leave it there. That's the show for this week. My thanks to our guests, Gary Boyson, Portfolio Manager at Rand Swiss, and Peter Little, Fund Manager at Anchor Capital. Thanks so much for the insights. Thank you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye and good night.